Don't worry, I'm not sick today. Um, if you are sick, just don't get near me, man. I can't handle it. I can't do that again. That was rough. Um, I was talking to a couple friends before. I was like, the only thing worse than being sick and not being here is knowing in my mind that my face was the size of a, like a semi-truck on a giant screen in front of people that I care about. So, you know, that was humbling. But um, I'm sad that I missed you guys last week, but I'm happy that I'm here now. Um, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray again. We can't pray too many times, right? Let me pray one more time um, just to kind of get our heads right. Lord, um, use this time. Father, take um, every word. I I pray that every word points to you only. I pray that every word is your word. Um, Take away the ones that are mine, leave yours. And Lord, um, for each of us, give us that special um, just understanding of your presence today that maybe we didn't have when we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, friends, so we're back, and guess what? It's week six, and you are killing it. You are killing it. You are, you are, you are legitimately more than halfway through, so that's great. If you're here for the first time, that's even cooler. I love that. I love that um, there are new people dropping in all the time because that's the beauty of, of Psalms, right? It's like it's a drop-in kind of book. Like any moment you're in, you're, you're right there with us. Um, last week, we talked about... Um, Psalm 105, remember that? We talked about um, that there was a call to worship that the psalmist shares with us by telling us to remember, to retell, and then to rejoice, right? Well, this week I have a surprise. I have a surprise, surprise. Yay, you're not gonna, yeah, you're gonna regret saying that in just a minute. We open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Ooh, I heard some groaning. (laughs) Uh, Psalm 119, yeah, so you didn't cover it in your lesson, but if you are, um, you should be familiar with it, because you're probably covering it every week, right? Well, Psalm 119 is the one, you know, at the end of each of your homework lessons, I give you that little question that says, okay, now flip to the appendix and take a look and and write your own little Mad Lib Psalm, right? I kind of challenge you to do that. Um, and if you haven't, I hope that you will jump in and do that, because it's, it's a powerful way to make God's word your own, but As I was thinking through what we should cover today, I realized the fact that we don't um, cover Psalm 119 in our study of Psalms is troubling to me, and here's why. It is the largest chapter in the entire Bible. The largest chapter in the entire Bible. The largest chapter in the entire Bible located within the biggest book of the whole Bible. And so I feel like there's great priority and importance on this particular chapter. And so it would be a shame for us to not go through that. And so we are going to, we're going to cover that today. Um, there's 176 verses. We're going to cover every one. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> See, it just took a minute. Y'all are a little slower this morning, but we're not going to cover every one. We're just going to overview. Um, we're going to look at it like that. But I do want you to, um, to understand that there's, there's great truth to be gathered from Psalm 119. And so as you go through your study for the next um, several weeks before we wrap it up, I hope that this becomes part of it. I hope that you decide to start taking it on in little pieces. Um, and I think you're going to understand why. Well, this week, um, if you're friends with me on any social media or if you're on our little Facebook page for our Bible study, which if you're not, you should be, okay, um, I asked a question. I put a question out there to the Facebook universe because, you know, that's going to be accurate representation of everyone's opinion. Uh, and I asked this question. I said, if you study the Bible, why do you study it? 
Why do you study it? I, I, um, I feel like I think I know the answer to that question. You probably do too. You're all sitting in here. But I would ask you, maybe write it down and maybe, maybe pray about it and say, okay, what, what is the real reason that I study God's word? I don't, know, I don't know what it means to you, but here's what some of the answers were that I got off Facebook, and I hope that you um, can, can identify with some of them, okay? The question, why do you study the Bible? Because nothing convicts, consoles, or challenges me like God's word. Why do you study the Bible? To push for sanctification after I've received my salvation. Lots of big words there, but basically what this person is saying, I have accepted the, the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ, and now I want to grow. Okay. Why do you study the Bible? Because getting to know someone is an important part of a relationship, and his word is one of the tools that he gives us to get to know him. It's pretty good. It's a living, active, God-breathed scripture, and it cuts between joint and marrow of my soul. To grow closer to my creator and connect with his truth, because reading his word causes me to love him more, and knowing his word helps me be able to discern real truth. I love this one. And I want to tell you too, when I asked this question on Facebook, I said, in one sentence, and this, this sweet friend said, oh, I just, after she wrote this, she goes, oh, I realized you asked for one sentence, but I'm going to read them all to you anyway, because they're that good. Ready? This is what she said. I just thought this was just us. Because I am so easily deceived by Satan as to what is actually true. I need to constantly turn my eyes to the real truth. His ways are not my ways. So just about the time I start feeling like I've got it, I need to dig in deeper all the more to see that my trajectory is just the slightest bit skewed and I'm just a little off the mark. Is that you? You feel that way? Why do you study the Bible? Because every life situation can be found and answered and it can strengthen our faith and it can deepen our relationship with him. Why do you study the Bible? I started studying the Bible. This is, this is awesome. Okay, I want to say this right now. This person, the honesty of this person, it, it, this, is, this is probably our answer on 99% of the days, right? Um, but we probably wouldn't type it out, but I love that she did. Why do you study the Bible? She says, I started studying it to try to make sense of the world, but I haven't found it yet. Anybody? Yeah. Sometimes that just doesn't come, does it? Why do you study the Bible? To hear his voice, to remind me of his love and his mercy and his grace and his promises. And then my very favorite, I think the most perfect answer of all of them, why do you study the Bible? Relationship. Relationship. I love that. You know, because the thing is, with, with a relationship, you can't just um, fall into a relationship with someone without truly knowing them, right? And that's the beauty of God's word is he's given us this giant, amazing, awesome a piece of divinely inspired, alive, active text that tells us all about who he is. It's like this gift. And if we do want relationship with him, this is like, it's like a shortcut to relationship. Well, Psalm 119, and I think you're going to understand the connection here because you're probably at this point going, okay, cool, but what does this have to do with this giant, long, amazing thing? Well, this quote kind of summed it up for me, and I think you're going to see this theme kind of over and over through Psalm 119. Listen to this. Warren Wearsby said this, and I just, just kind of soaked this in for a minute. He says, the way we treat the word of God is the way we treat the God of the word. 
The way we treat the word of God is the way we treat the God of the word. You see, this is his voice. It's his fingerprints. And so Psalm 119, you guys are going to love this because this is what I didn't ever know until I studied it. Psalm 119 is all about his word. It's all about the idea that we must seek to know and to value his word. We need to know and value his word. A couple of things about it before we get into the text is um, I mentioned before it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. 176 verses, Um, I found this little statistic, and I tested it. I want you to know, and it is true. Um, I I saw somebody wrote in some some magical piece of information that it takes 15 minutes to read it out loud. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to try it. I didn't read it. I pushed play on my little iPhone thing. It took a long time. (laughs) But you know what was really cool is I just decided, okay, this is something I've been missing out on. This is bonus content, by the way. Um, I don't do that very often. Do y'all do that? Do y'all just push play and let the Bible just be spoken over you? Okay, I carried that thing around as I folded clothes and put things away. I was carrying my phone everywhere. And I know my dogs and my husband and my children were all looking at me like, what is she doing? It's like this man's voice. And it was Psalm 119 just being said out loud everywhere I went in my whole house. Try it. It took 15 minutes, though, I will tell you that. Um, It's considered a wisdom psalm. There are a few of those. We've covered a few. It's considered a wisdom psalm, meaning it provides instruction in right living and right faith. It's in the tradition of the other Old Testament wisdom books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. This, okay, this is super cool. Ready? Okay, so you know how Psalms is a a book of poetry? Well, Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. And, and here's what you can know about that. Maybe in some of you, if, if your Bible has little headings, you might see some of these weird little words like every eight verses or so. Let me tell you what that is. This acrostic poem is written in 22 eight-verse stanzas. 22 eight-verse stanzas. So you'll see there's eight verses together, eight verses together, eight verses together. Each of those eight-verse stanzas begins with a letter. Now, our letters are different because we obviously aren't reading it in Hebrew. Some of you might be. That's awesome. Wait, yay for you. Um, but I was not. So, but if you read it in the original Hebrew, here's the cool part. Every one of the words that begin each of these stanzas starts with a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And you know how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet? There's 22. And so this psalmist took this thing and said, I'm going to make this easy to remember easy to memorize, easy to recite. And so each of these eight verse stanzas is representative of a Hebrew letter. Kind of cool, right? Because remember, at the time, they didn't have some big old print press or some, you know, printer that they Bluetoothed up to and sent it from their MacBook and, you know, sent off to print. No, that they had to remember in their hearts, in their minds, and they had to recite and sing and repeat. And so the psalmist gives them this way to do that. I thought that was really interesting. Um... Every, almost every single, okay, I mentioned there's 176 verses. Almost every single verse in this entire book references God's word. There's only about 10 lines that don't out of the whole thing. And so you see quickly what I'm trying to make us understand, that he is trying to help us understand that we need to value his word. We need to know his word because it matters The name of God will appear 24 different times in this book. 
We think the um, author was probably Ezra. We don't know for sure. It's one of those things where we kind of guess, but um, some, some scholars believe it was Ezra. I kind of believe it was because there's some, there's some history that he refers to about rebuilding the temple and some old, you know, old-timey things that kind of point to that period of time. But here's what, I, here's what was the clincher for me. When you go back and, and do some light reading in the book of Ezra, anybody? <laughs> Yeah, no, okay. Well, he was the author of Ezra, but we believe he was also the author of Nehemiah. Those two kind of go together. But um, listen to this description of Ezra and tell me if you think this kind of this jives with what Psalm 19, 119 is telling us. Ezra 7 verse 10 goes like this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You see, he had a passion for God's word, but not only that, he had a passion for letting his life share God's word with other people. And that's what you're going to see when you think of this voice. You're going to see someone so passionate, regardless of their circumstances, with understanding and valuing and sharing God's word. And that's what we get to take from this today. Psalm 119. Charles Spurgeon said this about Psalm 119. Remember, 176 verses, the largest chapter of the Bible, and Charles Spurgeon said this, we might do well to commit it to memory. Who's in? (laughs) Okay, y'all, tell me how that goes. (laughs) I love that, though. Like, he's making the point that this is so critical to our understanding that if there's something that you can take in, Take this in. And you know what I started thinking as I was listening, walking around, folding my clothes, listening to it out loud? I thought, you know what we could do? We could, we could memorize, you know, eight verses at a time. Those are bite-sized. You know, just little chunks and little pieces. I don't know. It's a possibility. Well, here's where we're going to go today. I, I, like I told you, it's really, it's really a long, big old boy. And so we're not going to cover all of it. I'm going to breeze through it. We're going to look at it from a really high um, perspective. But... I felt like the psalmist um, very clearly wants us to understand something about God's word today. And it's in three parts. Number one is that God's word is authoritative. Also that God's word is reliable and that God's word is powerful. Authoritative, reliable, and powerful. So we're going to start with the fact that God's word is authoritative one of the commentaries I like to refer to um, said this, uh, this, this, um, this author, Stephen Cole, he's a pastor. He said this. I thought this was beautiful. When God speaks, he does not mumble. When God speaks, he does not mumble. This is not a book of suggestions or helpful hints for happy living. That's not what it is. Instead, what it is, is it's this beautiful unfolding of the Christian faith. You see, um, when he, when the psalmist, okay, let me, let me pause this for a second. Okay, when the psalmist is referring to God's word, and you're going to see, I'm going to give you eight different ways he refers to God's word here. I want you to know that because of when he wrote it, obviously, he didn't have the right side of his Bible yet. There was no New Testament yet. Jesus had not come on the scene. And so what he's talking about, what he's referring to, are those five books of the Bible that begin our Bible. Remember, we said those are referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Okay, five books. And so when he refers to it, I want you to know that that's what he's talking about. Here's the beauty of what we have. We have the full story. And so when you read it, you get to read it with a whole different understanding, like this beautiful, amazing envisioned idea that he didn't even have yet, right? He just looked forward to. So ours is expansive. Well, interestingly, um, I've heard it referred to that this, when he refers to the law or, or the God's word or um, what we're going to see, all these different words, we often, um, 
we often get too wrapped up in the fact that it was just the first five books of the Bible, but I want to challenge you with something. I want want you to remember this. The first five books of the Bible tell the story of God's people, okay? They tell the story of God's people, but here's the beautiful thing. It's also the beginning of Christianity. It's the beginning of Christianity. And so when you consider that we are using this as the basis of what he's talking about here, remember this, the New Testament believers... They only had the Old Testament to bring people to Jesus. Realize that? They only had this part, the left part. Peter received guidance when he chose new disciples. That's in Acts 1. Stephen defended himself in gen- using Genesis, using Isaiah, using Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Amos, all these Old Testament books. Paul The Apostle Paul backed up ministering to the Gentiles. P.S. That is us in Isaiah. And Jesus, I mentioned that I think in lesson four, numerous times Jesus calls on the power of the Old Testament. So never forget for one minute that the Old Testament in the hands of these new believers is going to win the lost and it's going to spread the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And so you see that there is such power in these words. Well, I mentioned before, there's, um, okay, to, to go and decipher through this Psalm 119, I felt like it would be important for us to understand that he uses, the psalmist uses eight different terms to direct us to point to God's word. You see, I think it's kind of cool because he, he could have just said the Bible, or I guess he wouldn't have said the Bible. He could have just said the law over and over. He could have just said God's word over and over. But instead, he takes eight different words that have a tiny, different meaning, a little bit of a nuance that changes the aspect just a little bit. I'm going to hit them fast, okay? The first is the word law. He uses this word 25 times. It's the primary synonym that you're going to see, and again, because that's what um, often the Old Testament believers refer to those first five books as the law. I want us to remember this, that it can refer, the word law in the Bible can refer to a single command, meaning a law, It can refer to the first five books of Moses, like I mentioned, but it can also mean all of scripture, the entirety of your Bible. And that's where we get to go, the entirety of our Bible. I I wrote it out like this for Chris to remember. Law means this is the way to live that is best for me. God knows that this is the way that I should live. It is best for me. The next word that you see over and over when he's referring to his word is testimonies. It's used 10 times. It points to the dependability of the Bible as a witness. You know, I've heard before the idea that we witness. We get to tell our stories. That's a witness, right? Because we're telling a firsthand account. Well, the Bible is a witness to who God is. Thirdly, um, we see the word ways used seven different times. Consider this word as um, it's God's characteristic manner of acting, right? It's like how he's going to go about things. And the thing that I wrote down is that that when you think about way, think about this, his way, not, not your way. His way, not your way. The fourth word is precepts. You see that 21 times the psalmist used precepts. It means to oversee or pay really close attention. I think of it this way. It's what God has appointed to be done, okay? Statutes is the next word. We see it 22 times. It comes from the idea of engraving something in stone, and it means um, that, that, that you're bound to the permanence of what this is. It's, it's a permanent thing, this scripture. It's not going to be this changing idea. It's solid. It's what God has laid down. 
commandments. 22 times he uses the word commandments when he's referring to God's word. And, and, and really what, what that means is it's the straight authority, okay? It's like, it's not just what he's commanded, it's what he's demanded. Authority. Another word that you see, and they're kind of used um, intermittently back and forth because there's different translations that translate it differently, is the word judgments or ordinances. We see that 23 different times, judgments or ordinances. These are the decisions of the all-wise judge, meaning God, about common human situations. In other words, it's his judgment, not ours. And the last word that we see over and over is the actual word, word. And we see it 23 times. Most generally, um, the emphasis here is that this, I love this. This is what God has spoken. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he calls himself. He's referred to as the word, right? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us here, hanging out in Flower Mound, Texas. That's what he did. And so I love that the idea that that is God's voice, the word. There's a couple other words. These are bonuses. This is bonus because you came today. Um, faithfulness, righteousness, name. Those are some others that sometimes people say that are, are um, also indicative of, of this idea of God's word. But I want you to understand the power of it. I want you to see that when the psalmist is talking about God's word, he doesn't just mention it real quickly. He gives us all these different variants. I'm going to read one little, one little stanza, and I want you to listen for some of these words and see how they open up kind of in a new way when you hear them this way. Now, you know, you could just slip in the word Bible, Bible, Bible every time, but I love that he didn't because he shows us that there's a deeper meaning, there's more power in it. I'm going to read verses 61. Wait, is that a lie? I'm going to read verses 65 through 72. So if you want to follow along, you can. 65 through 72. He's speaking to God, remember? You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolence smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand pieces of gold or silver. Do you see how it kind of opens up a new idea, a new meeting, a new power? The psalmist is trying to help us understand God's word is not just this, this singular little, you know, flat thing. It is like deep and it, and, and it has so many different levels and it's just unimaginable in the power. The Bible speaks with God's authority, y'all. And what the Bible says is what God says. It's his voice. The Bible speaks with authority. Well, the next section um, that, that I, I thought that we could learn from Psalm 119 is this, that uh, God's word is reliable. And I would add a little parenthetical phrase at the end. You're going to love this. It's always, it, the God's word is reliable, but it's not always favorable, right? Sometimes you read some of this and you're cringing, right? You're like, no, I, mm, let me go back to Philippians or something. I don't know. But sometimes it's hard, right? 
Well, I want to tell you, um, it is reliable. And I, this one I wrestled with more than any of them sections. I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but I want to tell you a little piece of information. Um, hear me when I say this. Satan is always, always, always trying to undermine God's credibility in our lives. And so what better way, what better way for him to undermine the credibility of God than to, than to creep into your world and subtly erode your belief in the reliability of scripture. Because here's what he cannot do. He cannot make the scripture untrue, amen? He cannot make it unreliable. He can't do that. He does not have the power to do that. But what he can do is get you alone, get you in the dark, get you in places where he whispers into your ear, this is not reliable. It's scary, isn't it? I mean, we, we, I'm gonna assume everybody in here, which is never wise to assume, but I'm gonna assume everybody in here knows Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you're getting to know him because you're studying Psalms. But I will tell you, it's hard for us to believe that because we think once we accept Jesus as our savior that that part goes away, it does not go away. There's a constant voice that is out there trying to get you to doubt the reality, doubt the reliability. Well, I saw this quote and I felt like it perfectly summed it up. Um, John MacArthur, in his book called Our Sufficiency in Christ, he wrote this about this whole idea that we, that we struggle with the reliability of Scripture. He said this, contemporary evangelicalism, that's us, has been beguiled and sabotaged by a ruinous lack of confidence in God's word. Hear that again. We have been beguiled and sabotaged by a ruinous lack of confidence in God's word. I'm not talking about the question of whether or not God gave us the inerrant Bible. Of course he did. And the great majority of evangelicals, us, accept that without question. We do. We believe that. But many who would never doubt the Bible's authenticity as of God's word or distrust its essential authority as a guide for righteous living have, listen to this, nevertheless, they have accepted the notion that scripture simply does not contain all we need. Do you, do you feel that? You know, that's, that's a pretty honest statement to say about us as believers that we choose sometimes to believe that this is not all we need. Listen, um, Tim Keller says it like this, either God will be the unquestioning arbiter of truth or something else will serve that function in your life. Is it opinions? Is it feelings? Is it scientific reasoning? I don't know what it is, but if you don't make the choice to decide yes, this is reliable. I, I, um, I don't know. It's an anchor. You know, I think of it as an anchor. Like what in the world? If I, if I don't have this holding me down, what will? What is the anchor that you have? Is it how you feel? Is it what your circumstance is in that moment? Because you know it's changing. You know it's going to change tomorrow. Is it what people say, what they tell you? Is it other people's opinions? The question I think um, we need to ask ourselves is how, not it has, but how has the enemy been actively eroding our belief in the reliability of this? How is he doing it in your life? Identify it. Put light on it. And here's a question that I hate asking, so I'm going to stare down at my podium here. Um, do you rely on the supplements or add-ons in life to be the things that guide you, that anchor you? Do you look at psychology, business, government, politics, entertainment, whatever else recipe might make you think that you're gonna get fixed? Is that where you put your trust? Is that where you anchor yourself? Because here's the thing, do you seek first 
the word of God. All those things are good things. All those things are good things in conjunction with truth, okay? I think we all, we get that messed up sometimes. We think it's either or, it's not. It's the question is what's first? In this book, over and over, um, the psalmist is gonna ask questions that are basically asking us, do we trust God's word first as reliable? Questions like, um, am I consumed with longing for his rules at all times? Do you live like that? Do you find yourself longing for him and his rules and, and, and his way? Do you trust in his word? Is your hope in his word? Do you remember his word? Do you find comfort in, in your affliction because of the promises that he's given? Do you live as though you believe that every one of God's righteous rules will endure forever? That's verse 160. I don't, I don't know. I feel like if I'm answering honestly, every, I wish I could say every minute of my life, yes, I do. But that's not true. I want this to be true. I want to trust the reliability of God. Um, I thought of, a, of an interesting example. You know, um, I have a, a friend, um, and just this week, just this week, she's been um, hit hit hard in life with with some stuff, with marriage stuff. And um, you know, we've been talking through it, and and uh, we decided we were going to commit because we can't fix each other's lives. Amen. Can't do it. I can't counsel. She can't counsel. There's no fixing. God's the only fixer. So what we decided to do was do this crazy thing. Are you ready? It's crazy. We're going to pray for each other's marriages. I know it's crazy. Who who thought of this? It's nuts. Um, because here's the thing, here's the truth, right? If you're married, um, you have marital problems. <laughs> yeah, okay. If you're not married and you're going to be married, you're going to have them. If you're not married and you're not going to be married, you know people who have them. Am I making that point clear? Okay, this is just one example in life. So we decided to pray for each other's marriages. And you know what I realized? I realized in that moment, like... Um, do I trust the reliability of God's word to help me do things like this? Like I'm praying for this friend and she's praying for me. And I'm like, I sat down, I'm like in my comfy chair and my dogs were at my feet. And I was like, I had my coffee. I was ready to go. And I was like, okay, I, I just <laughs> help her. <laughs> and then I did this. This is where I wanted to go with you. I went to the anchor and, and I went to the great theologian, Google. He's, he's available. You can find him at any time. And because I, I know so well my Bible, I typed in Bible verses about marriage. But here's what's cool about Google. It can be fantastic sometimes because you know what happened when I did that and I hit enter? You know what happened, this giant list. And so here's what I did. I pulled up the list of all these scriptures and I opened them up as I was sitting down to pray for my friend and her marriage and then my marriage. And I started just jotting down truth that I got from God's word. And here's some of the things I wrote down. You ready? This is not me, this is him. About marriage, I can trust these things, that God wants me to be patient, that God wants me to be humble, to be gentle, to be united, to be satisfied. That God wants us to be of noble character, he wants us to be prudent, he wants us to be blameless, he wants us to be supportive. He wants us to leave our extended family and focus on our spouse. He wants us to respect one another. He wants happiness to come. He wants us to yield to him. He wants us to not deprive or withhold anything from one another. And he wants us to be content and he wants us to be one. That didn't come from me. See, that came from the reliability of scripture. And I know for some people that is hard to hear. It's hard for me to hear. It's hard for my friend to hear because I hear all these things and I see all the places that I fall short, you know. But the beauty 
is that God sees those things too and he loves me anyway. And he doesn't even bat an eye, right? He knows my heart. He knows what he has planned. And so that's how I would challenge you. When you start questioning the reliability of scripture, I would challenge you to go to the great theologian Google and write something in there and then just start writing down the truth. And then tell God, I want to understand and rely on this. Our first thought has to be to approach God's word. That has to be first. We have to approach his word for direction because it is always reliable, no matter what. Well, the last point um, about God's word that, that I felt like it really came to the surface in Psalm 119 is that God's word um, is, is powerful. God's word is powerful. Uh, I don't think anybody would argue that. You know, I think even if you don't know God's word or you don't study it or you don't, you don't choose to strive after knowing him through it, I don't think you can deny that it's powerful. But here's the question I would ask you. Um, do you realize you have a choice? You have a choice if you're going to rely on the power of God's word or are you going to rely on your own power? Uh, what do I give power to? What, what am I giving power over to? Do I allow God's power, his word, to seep into my life? D.L. Moody said this one time, the only way to keep a broken vessel full is by keeping the faucet turned on. The only way to keep, uh, listen, broken people, I'm looking at you, I'm talking to you. The only way to keep a broken vessel full is to keep the faucet turned on. Do you keep the faucet turned on? God's word gives us direction. If you look at, there's like a, a bazillion verses in here, but let me just read a couple just to kind of remind you that I'm not lying to you right now. Verse 24 says this, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Ever heard that one? Yeah, he gives us the day. He's the one that determines. In verses 98 and 99, he says this, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And it goes on and on and on. God seeks to give us direction, and that's powerful. You know, I have a teenage daughter. Don't tell her I said this. But um, she had a test not too long ago. It's physics again. Y'all, can we be done with physics? Is it really that important? I feel like somebody else should be doing, like, some other. Anyway, that's another talk for another time. Um, but she came home, she had a test. She's like, oh, I did terrible on my test. She doesn't talk like that. <laughs> She's very cool. She did terrible on her test, right? She was so bummed out. I'm like, oh man, I hate that. You know, that's too bad. I mean, how much did you study? Well, I studied last night. I mean, I like studied for hours and I go, babe, trust me, I'm a professional. You know what that means? That wasn't studying. That was cramming. Amen. I know I'm a professional. I've done it for years. Um, I think about the idea that God wants to give us direction and I ask myself, do I come to God's word um, when a crisis hits and I open it up for some emergency guidance? You know, do I cram? I mean, cramming is good because it can get you an okay grade, but you know what God wants for us? He wants best, not just good. And so do I seek his direction in all the parts of my life, not just when I have a physics test coming up. The second thing that I see that he does that shows his power, that his word is power, is that God's word gives us stability in our trials, stability in our trials. 
The thing we know about the psalmist, whether it was Ezra or whether it was not, we know that people were speaking out against him. We know that he repeatedly says he was afflicted. We know that evil men were persecuting him. But the Bible is real clear, y'all, real clear. I mean, crystal, that godly people are not exempt from trials. I see your faces. And I know a lot of you are like, I want to stand up and say amen right now, but it would be awkward. Okay, I feel you. I feel you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 16.33 reminds us that in this world we will have trouble. But take heart, right? The Bible's clear about it. And so I feel like Psalm 119 is reminding us that he wants to give us stability in those times of trouble. In, in um, verses 61 through 64... Went too far. Sorry, there's a lot of words here. Um, Talk amongst yourselves for a moment. All right, here it is. 61 through 64. Ah, listen to this. Trials. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I will rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You see, he understands that his trials may not end. Then if they do, they're ending for just like a moment and then something new is coming, right? That doesn't change who God is in the midst of our trials. He can be the one to give us stability. Well, the third thing I would say about the power of God's word is this, that God's word brings us into relationship with the living God relationship with the living God. Even believers uh, go through all those dry and weary times and need revival, amen? A couple weeks ago, we talked about that word, revival. Where do you find yours? Because you're going to go through these things, and so where in the midst of those things are you going to find it? I love that we get direct contact with God. Listen, verse 37 says this, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verse 88 says this, just hear this. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Verse 154 says this. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. We get relationship. We get to ask for these things. And he hears us and he answers us, y'all. Even in the midst of the hard stuff. Keep the faucet on. Don't cram. Keep it on. We have a choice. We can rely on the power of God or we can rely on our own power. What are you choosing? Listen, um, I I have about two minutes left. And you know what that means. I'm going to take longer than two minutes. But... I'm going to do it with joy in my heart. Um, Why are you here? Why are you studying God's word? I don't know how to answer that for you. And and God knows. God already knows the answer. But but, um, I feel like it's worth answering. Because when you shine the light on things and put truth in place of lies or fakeness or comparisons or whatever, then you realize that you have to be the one to make a choice and take action. I thought of um, five things, real quick, five things that we can do, actions that we can take if we are going to choose 
to be anchored in God's word if we're going to choose that. Five things, pray. You're like, duh, yeah, okay, I'm going to say something a little different. How about this? Pray for the desire to delight in his word. Pray for that. Pray for a deep-seated passion for every single word of it. Pray for that. I pray for it all the time because I'm in it a lot and sometimes it starts to get dry and starts to just look like um, um, studying a book and I, I feel like that is just not what he intended. He loves when you read it, but he loves for you to take it into your bones and let it be a part of who you are. Ask for it, ask for it and see what happens. Just try it as an experiment. The second thing is he wants us to learn. We need to learn. We need to be disciplined and we need to apply time and effort and practice and not just have a magic wand that we, that we decide that uh, that's going to be the way we fix everything. Listen, I thought about jump shots and jump ropes. I thought about song lyrics and sign language, you know, all those things. Think about it. I'm going to say them again. Ready? Jump shots and jump rope. <laughs> song lyrics and sign language all take discipline, don't they? They all take practice. I know you're sitting here right now and you know a million song lyrics in your head. I know more song lyrics than I know Bible verses. What is that about? Well, it's about repetition. It's about choices that I make. It's about how I spend my time. And so how about I apply the discipline, time, effort, and practice to God's word to learn it. And all of a sudden, before I know it, it's a part of me. The third thing is I would say meditate. And you remember way back when, when we took, took a look at Psalm number one, a wisdom psalm also, he tells us, and this is what stays with me, that we are to delight and meditate in God's word and not just read it and just move through it like a physics textbook, but instead to meditate on it, which means over and over, habit forming, memorizing, working it into your everyday life. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it looks like carrying your phone around and press and play and doing the laundry with it. I don't know. But maybe consider that. Consider taking things in over and over. Read it and go, huh, that was weird. I don't know how I feel about that. Read it again. Okay, that was awesome. Hey, God, will you, tell me, will you tell me kind of what you want me to see? Read it again. Read it in a different verse. Listen to, listen to it. I don't know, but over and over, and God will show you something that he didn't show you the first time. Amen? Meditate. So pray, learn, meditate. The fourth would be obey. I would challenge you with, with this question. What do you do with the commandments in Scripture? What do you do with this? Do you obey it? Um, I heard this funny story. I've told it before, but it's too funny not to tell again. About a pastor one time who stood up to his congregation. He said that. He goes, what do you do with the commandments that are in your Bible? And this sweet little woman raised her hand and said, I underline them in blue. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's solid. I love that. But don't just be an underliner, amen? Be a doer of the word. That's what James says. And the last thing is to seek him with your whole heart. Are you all in? Love is the motivation for all obedience. And so if you seek him, you will find him. And if you are seeking him, I promise you, all these things will start cropping up where you're like, oh, it's easier to pray. I'm learning more things. I have a desire to want to meditate. All these things kind of rely on themselves. Um, the way you treat the word of God is the way you treat the God of the word, guys. It's the truth. How will you treat his word? Psalm 119 tells us over and over that we're to remember that it is, um, that it is authoritative, that it is reliable, and that it is powerful. Um, I'm going to close really quickly um, with one little thing. You know, it's funny. I didn't share this last night. Um, but this morning I got up and I was doing my, my little time with Jesus. And, and I opened up randomly to day 75, day 75, 
And this is what God gave me on day 75. On day 75, and this is just a, a random devotional that has all different parts of the Bible. And you know what it was today? It was Ezra 7.10, the one I read to you just a minute ago. And so I thought, okay, got it. <laughs> I will do it. And so I'm going to close in prayer by reading this because I think you're going to see how this perfectly sums up what we should be praying to our Lord, okay? So will you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, I want to be like Ezra, but first I need to value your word. I need to make it a priority in my life. Steep me in it. Give me deep-seated passion for everything written in these passages, Lord. Teach me to not only know, to memorize, and to meditate on it, but to also internalize it and then obey it joyfully. I will truly know your word when doing what it says is a priority in my life, God. Study and obey. It's how I want to be known. Teach me to value what you value. May your word become my greatest standard, how I measure everything. May your word be the filter by which I see the world, regardless of opinions of other people. Lord, I'm grateful it never, ever changes and it never wanes and it's always pointing to you and what you've done. Show me people in my life or bring brand new folks, Lord, to whom I can teach your word. I confess that I'm afraid to do that. I don't feel qualified or ready, but I do know that people are starving and that biblical literacy is waning. And so I choose to raise my hand and volunteer, reveal the who and the when of this important task. Your word is truly a spotlight on my heart, a beacon highlighting the next steps that you want me to take, a measuring stick for my outward behavior the most awesome love story about a God who pursues his people. I love it and I love you. Amen.